Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Alessandro de Stefani is the fourth generation of his family to make wine in the Veneto, but the first to have benefited from the extraordinary rise and rise of Prosecco. Listen to his chat about the different terroir of Corneliano and Valdobbiadene, his love of the red Marzamino grape, the role of social media in wine marketing, and why Ernest Hemingway was such a big fan of his family's wines. Hi, Alessandro, how are you? I'm very well, Tim. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Hot day here in London. It must. What's it like in the Venice? It's probably a bit cooler, is it? You've got some, some breezes yeah. from the mountains. No, unfortunately, it's very hot here as well. And we haven't had rain in the last month, so it's, it's quite uh, uh, dry here, and we need some rain for the vineyards. But, uh, but it's lovely summer for, for whom could, that can enjoy the summer. Yeah, but a bit worrying if you're, if you're in the vineyards with climate change, do you think? Yeah, we are a little bit worried. This year, it seems really to be a very tough year because we hadn't had rain during the winter and then the start of the spring was very dry and now we hadn't had rain for the last, let's say, two months. We had the last uh, two or three small rains. Mm -hmm. So the situation is quite difficult now. I mean, what's it going to be like at the other end of the country in, in Sicily, for example? Yeah, in Sicily is very bad as well. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, nowadays in the north of Italy, we have almost the same situation than in the south. So uh, a few years ago, decades ago, uh, you know, the south was much, much drier than the north. Mm -hmm. But in the last decade, uh, we are almost in the same position. And it's, uh, you know, they have a little bit more hotter temperature there. But the, in terms of rainfalls, it's more or less the same. And this year is, is a very difficult, very challenging uh, year here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, all over Europe, by the sounds of it, I mean, you know, temperatures in the 40s uh, yeah. in, in Spain and um, Sicily must be the same, I suppose. That's right. Yeah. Listen, lots of stuff I want to talk to you about. Particularly, I want to talk a lot about Prosecco because you're such a great yeah. producer of Prosecco. But I want to start with a little bit of family history. I like doing this. Yeah. And you're the fourth generation to make wine in, in, in the Veneto of your family. Can you tell us a little bit about Valeriano de Stefani, who's your great-grandfather, I think, who founded the winery? Because your, your ancestors were called Stefan, not, not de Stefani, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So my great-grandfather was called Valeriano, and he was the founder of the winery. And his ability was especially, he was very good in knowing in which site, in which uh, slope of the hill, he had to, to plant a specific variety because he, he knew every corner of the, of the estate. He knew any, every characteristic of, of the varieties. So he knew exactly where he could plant Glera for Prosecco or Marzemino for a red wine or other grapes. And so and he was also very keen in quality. And, uh, you know, he set the rule in our winery of quality with no compromise. Mm. And, yeah, that's the old family name. And still today, our nickname is Stefan. <laughs> we found we found an interesting document in the parish archives in the small village of Refrontolo, mm -hmm. which is between Valdobbiadene and Conegliano, the best area for the Prosecco, basically north of Venice, in the hills north of Venice. Uh, dated, this document was dated 1624, 
and uh, it was uh, the for the birth of one of our ancestors that was Menigo Stefan. Mm. So we discovered that our old surname was Stefan. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And what about your dad, Tiziano? Because he travelled widely, didn't he, uh, to other wine regions and countries and brought ideas back to the region. I just wondered how much he influenced your winemaking philosophy, really. Yeah, he influenced a lot because he, uh, when in the begin in the 60s, after graduation, his graduation in enology and viticulture in the wine school of Conegliano, he wanted to make uh, good red wines and to improve the quality of these red wines, he went to France, to Bordeaux, and he fell in love, especially with the area of Pomerol. So when he came back to Italy in 19, 1961, he wanted to find an estate which was very similar to Pomerol. And this is why uh, we uh, he bought, actually, the estate where I'm sitting now. It's in Fossalta di Piave, which is a little bit closer uh, to the seaside, closer to Venice compared to the village of Refrontolo that I told you before, because it was very similar to, to Pomerol in Bordeaux. And so this French uh, influence also influenced myself, and we follow very much some French uh, viticulture practices and also winemaking practices uh, of our wines. And we'll talk about the reds later because they're really, uh, your yeah. reds are really interesting, I think. Yeah. But I mean, I, I can't believe the fact that you were 14 when you enrolled at the Enological School in Corneliano. I mean, is that unusual? I mean, I mean it must be. Unusual. A 14 year old, I mean, I mean, were you just very <laughs> precocious? What were you doing at 14? No, actually, in Italy, uh, you know, that was like a high school. Ah. And, but since I was in the elementary school, my mother tells me that. I was always writing the sentences and the homeworks, writing that I want to be a winemaker, I want to make wine, I want to have my dad making wines. And that was, uh, that was very funny for me to hear that later on. And uh, yes, so when I was 14, uh, I enrolled in the, uh, as a high school in the enology school, that today there is uh, still this school, but there is also the University of Enology and Viticulture, mm. which there wasn't when I was studying wow. at that time, mm. and that was introduced later. I mean, were you drinking wine as a teenager? Was it part of your studies? Yes, it was part of our studies, but only it, this is this is interesting because this high school was the only uh, and this the only wine school in Italy that lasts for six years. All the other schools, high schools, last for five years. So only in the fifth and the sixth year, uh, we could uh, we were allowing uh, allowed to taste wines, and we actually had two hours per week of wine tasting professional wine tasting in, in a specific room with special colors, special light, and um, with a special characteristic of this room. And we had a professor that was teaching us any detail of wine tasting in a professional way. So you were 18 by then, were you? Or yeah, not? yeah, I was 18 yeah. by then. Yeah. But it's quite common in Italy to, to drink, to taste, not to drink, but to taste some wines from the early, from the, you know, adolescence years. Yeah, I mean, I, 14, I think 15. the Italians have a much more mature relationship, I think, in a way, with alcohol maybe than we do, the British. And you would know, you've lived in England. Um, I mean, in Italy, it's pretty rare for people to drink wine without food, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's up to, absolutely, it's like that. Uh, we can have some wine without food, but just before uh, dinner or before lunch as an aperitif, mm -hmm. which could be, could be, you know, a glass or two of wine with some appetizer, you know, something to, to, to bite. And then uh, after a while, we can start uh, dining or having lunch. And obviously with food, we always have uh, wine. Uh, in any family in Italy, we have wine. 
I mean, it's interesting that you started working in the winery, it was your ambition, when you were 19, but then you went off and did other studies, didn't you? You know, you studied economics and business studies at the University of Venice and then at Warwick University uh, in the Midlands in England. Uh, just tell us a little bit about how important you think it is for winemakers to understand business. I mean, did your father understand business in the way that you do, do you think? Yeah, um, I, I don't think he, he did, but uh, because it's, um, it was... Um, Quite a coincidence because when I was when I studied uh, enology as a high school, I finished when I was 19, and the enology uh, university hadn't started yet. So at that point, I had the choice to stop there and started working in the winery, or to develop further studies. So I was thinking about chemistry, biology, but then I said, okay, I, I will run a winery. So it's not only making wine, but I have to do it overall. So I, I started. I I decided to, to decided to go for economics and business studies, yeah. which which is very important because you know it's um, as I told you it's uh, our uh, activity is basically based on three sectors. There's the viticulture uh, of for making the grapes, then there's the uh, winemaking for making the wines in the winery, and then there's the commercial part for selling the wines and marketing the wines, and then there is you know the the, the, the union of all these three sectors together into a business uh, prospection. And so uh, this was very interesting for me uh, also to have an overview on the economics and, you know, the marketing especially. But now, I know that nowadays in the Enology University, they pay a lot of attention on this marketing and, and study, business studies also for the winemakers. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And I have my two, I have my, I have three kids two boys and one girl. The two boys, that they, they are already studying at the Enology University. Marco, who is the eldest one, is in his second year. And Paolo, the second one, is in his first year of university. Mm. And then when they reach the third year, they can choose whether they want to develop more winemaking if, or mm. they can develop more viticulture or they can develop more marketing. Mm. So it seems that one of the two boys wants marketing and the other one winemaking. Yeah, I mean, you, you seem to do everything at the winery. I can't believe it. Yeah. You're, you're winemaker, you're managing director, you're commercial director, you're the person running the 40 hectares of vineyards. I mean, you must have other people helping you. I, mean, I know your wife helps you as well, doesn't she? But you must have yeah. quite a few yeah. employees as well. Who yeah, it just yeah, seems yeah. that you do everything, right? That's, that's right. That's right. My, my wife is helping me a lot, uh, especially in marketing and, and public relations. All the people coming to the winery, she takes care of them. And she also coordinates. We have a team of people for the marketing and for the public relation. But they also have an amazing and fantastic team in the winery. I have uh, two winemakers that uh, are graduated in the Enology and Viticulture University, an assistant winemaker. I have some wonderful guys uh, in the vineyard for managing the grapes and the viticulture. So, yes, I have a lot of support. And, you know, I'm, I have a little bit more experience than them. So I'm trying to <laughs> give them my support. But they are very good. Mm. When I had dinner with you uh, in Germany earlier this year, where we met, you were telling me about a really interesting link that your winery has with Ernest Hemingway. I mean, I love Ernest Hemingway's writing. How did he come to, to know the wines of your winery? What, what was he doing in Italy? This, this, is very, uh, this is a very interesting story because he was uh, not in Italy for, for wine. He was, during the First World War, he was a volunteer for the American Red Cross and he wanted to help the Italian soldiers. But uh, in the night of the 8th July 1918, he was badly injured at his knee by a bomb and he was brought into the house of the winery for one night. He was treated there, he was cured there, and he had the opportunity to taste the wines. And that, that night, 
And I always, always say that he was suffering a lot, he was bleeding a lot, and he was actually dying. Uh, but he drank a lot of the Stephanie wines and recovered immediately. <laughs> they brought him back to life. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and there's a photograph of him, isn't there, in, in the house where, where he yeah. was an invalid? Yeah, Yeah. there's, there's a photograph of mm. Ernest Hemingway just in front of the house. And then after, uh, you know, in his life, he used to, to come back in this area very often. And he fell in love with the lagoon in Venice. He fell in love with the countryside. He was coming here to taste wines. He, he was also hunting here. So he loved this area and especially the wines of this area. Good to, good to hear. I mean, you know, your dad had this French influence. He went to Bordeaux. I just wonder when you started to take over the winery, what, what, what did you change in the vineyard and in the winery? I mean, was, that, was it you that moved to denser plantings, more vines per hectare in particular? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, uh, I remember when I was studying, especially in the fifth year and sixth year of my uh, high school of enology, and my professor of viticulture was emphasizing a lot to us the importance of having a low yield per plant, not per mm. hectare, because he says it doesn't mean how many grapes you do in a hectare in somehow, but it, 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 it's very important to have a low yield per plant to have a better quality, more concentration and more deepness in the wines. So he said, you have to plant many vines in a hectare so you can have a very low yield of grapes per each vine. Anyway, in a hectare, you can have a good quantity, but it depends a lot on the density. So uh, yes, when I, when I joined the winery, I had to you know, at the beginning to fight a little bit with my father to say, okay, we have to plant more. <laughs> but because, you know, more plants you have per hectare, the more mm. plants you have, the more costs you have for mm. managing them. Mm. So my father was you're a little bit worried for the cost of that. <laughs> but then he said, okay, yes, let's do that. And after a few years, he was very, very happy about that. Because yes. he tasted the results, right? Yes, he tasted the results. And, you know, the quality improved, the deepness of the wines improved, and also the longevity, the, cap the ability of the wines to age for, for years and decades. That was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about the, the different terroir that you, that you work in? I mean, how many? You've got 40 hectares or so. I yes. just wonder how different they are in terms of soil type and, and altitude and which ones are better suited to red grapes, for example, and others to sparkling wine and also to, to producing white wines, non-sparkling wine. Yes, exactly. We basically work from two appellations. One is called Conegliano Valdobbiadene, which is the hilly area 40, 50 kilometers north of Venice. And that is where we produce our Prosecco DOCG, so our highest level of Prosecco. And that is at uh, 250 meters above sea level. It's at the foot of the Dolomites, the Alps. It's 50 kilometers from the seaside. And there, the soil is very rich in, in clay, and it's very calcareous and a lot of limestone. Mm. And then we have another terroir, a different terroir, where we produce mainly the red wines and also the white wines, because it's a little bit uh, farther down, close to the sea. So it's uh, actually 10 kilometers from the seaside and 40 kilometers from the Dolomites. And this is a more flat area, very similar to Pomerol. And here, the soil is called Caranto, it's an Italian word that there's no translation. And it's basically a mix of clay, white clay, limestone, and minerals that the river Piave has brought down from the mountains in the past millennia with floods. And that's very important for the life of the vineyard. So this is these are both of them very interesting terroirs. Are other people growing red grapes where you're growing them, or are you one of the yeah. few people doing it? 
Yeah, yeah. Many other peoples are doing that. It's, okay. it's an area very, quite, quite famous for red grapes. We have a lot of uh, local grapes like uh, Raboso, Marzemino, Refosco. And we also have uh, international grapes like Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And especially Merlot uh, comes out very well in this, in this terroir. And, and is there a big difference between Cornelialo and Valdobbiadine, these two parts of Prosecco? Are they very different? Yeah, there's a, there's a slight difference. Cornigliano is a little bit hotter and a little bit uh, has a le less elevation. Valdobbiadene is a little bit higher and cooler. And also the grapes ripe uh, one or two weeks later in Valdobbiadene compared to Cornigliano. So Cornigliano in Prosecco can give more structure and complexity. Valdobbiadene, a little bit leaner wines, leaner, leaner Prosecco, but more aromatic. And do you blend the two or do you make it from just we, one? We are, we are quite... Uh, lucky because our estate is in this small village called Refrontolo, which is just in the heart, in the middle between Valdobbiadene and Conegliano. So we have a little bit of both uh, characteristics. <laughs> so have you got grapes in both or do you buy grapes as well? Do you have vineyards in both? No, 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 no. We have vineyard in, in this estate in the middle of the two cities. And we have we are self sufficient with our grapes that we, that. we produce. Yes, very good story. I mean, you make other wines as well, which alluded to. And we'll talk about those in a minute. But I want to talk to you a little bit about Prosecco because um, it's just a phenomenal success story, isn't it? I'm sure many of the people listening to the podcast will be Prosecco drinkers and Prosecco lovers. How do you explain the success? Is there an element of luck? Is it the wine style? Is it brilliant marketing? Is it all those things? What is it? It's a, it's a, it's a very uh, strange case what happened, and it's uh, been studied in all the marketing university of wine, what happened in, in Prosecco. I remember when I was a student, Prosecco was an important wine, but was a, was a local wine. The market was only local. And then uh, year by year, the importance of Prosecco grew. Uh, the markets were enlarging. The demand was growing. And the big change was 15 years ago when there was a little bit of change in the legislation between DOC and DOCG Prosecco and all the controls that there's behind Prosecco. Each bottle of Prosecco has a government sticker uh, to guarantee the quality and the origin of the Prosecco. Uh, and the characteristic of Prosecco is, is the key reason, in my opinion, for its success. It's a light wine. It's fruity. It's easy to drink. We say it's a happy wine. Uh, men and women love it. Young people and old people love it. Uh, you can drink it in the morning, in the afternoon, in, in the evening or in the night. You can use it for a normal meal or for celebrating something. So it's a very versatile wine. Yeah. And, I, and I always remember the words of my professor of enology, Professor De Rosa. He wanted to explain to us students what Prosecco was. And he said, you have to take a bucket fill it with Prosecco, put your head into the bucket and drink it until the Prosecco comes out from your ears. <laughs> <laughs> because he wanted to let us understand that it's a light wine that you can drink in good quantity. And it's, you know, it's an easy drinking wine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the phenomenon of Prosecco, the growth of sales of Prosecco is incredible. And still today, we're growing a lot in general. As a, as a How many bottles area. are made now? You told me it was an amazing statistic. Yeah, now it's uh, 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 750 million bottles of Prosecco in the world. And it's incredible what's happening. And it's still growing. Hmm. Uh, and I remember 10 years ago, uh, we were 300 million bottles, more or less the same as champagne. And in 10 years, we more than doubled the production. 
So it's, it's really incredible. And still today, many markets are opening to Prosecco. For example, mm. Asia is still a small market for Prosecco, but they are starting China, you know, Japan mm. and these countries. They are starting to appreciate Prosecco. Whereas in other, in Europe or North America, Prosecco is already uh, very successful, sparkling yeah. wine and very well, well known. It, is its biggest market Italy? Biggest market is Italy. And then there's uh, United States, mm. and then England. Uh, it's a it's a UK. It's a, it's a yeah, it's a great market for prosecco. And then Germany, and then incredibly France. France is the fourth <laughs> export market for prosecco. So the countries of Champagne, they love prosecco. So this is this is amazing. Well, that's a great story to tell the French, isn't it? Next time, yeah. they're, they're annoying. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, one of your proseccos was voted the best in the world in 2020. Um, but there's a lot of commercial Prosecco. You know, there's a difference between, as you said, between DOC and DOCG, which is superior. I, I just want, how do you stand out from the crowd? Um, how do you make your Prosecco different? Uh, we, we make uh, our Prosecco different, especially from the terroir. This, this place where we have our estate of Prosecco, Refrontolo, uh, has an amazing climate. It's at the foot of the Dolomites. So... Almost every evening we have a little bit of rain in that area and Prosecco needs water because it's, it's a grape that has to have water to, cre to create the aroma typical of Prosecco to maintain the acidity. Mm. Uh, the clay soil keeps the water and so the vines have always a little bit of humidity and water to live. And then also the, uh, everything is done by hand because it's a, it's a very steep slope. It's called uh, our Prosecco that won this uh, best Prosecco uh, word. It's called Rive di Refrontolo. And Rive in our dialect means a very steep slope. Mm -hmm. So every work has to be done by hand. Mm -hmm. So it's very work demanding. It's very difficult. And then we also pay a lot of attention in winemaking because we, we divide the production in two parts. One is made uh, sparkling in tank, Charma method, mm -hmm. and it stays on the lees for six months. And the other second part stays on the lees only two months. So the first one gives more body and structure, mm -hmm. and the second one gives more flavors and uh, aroma. And then when we blend it together, then the result is, is really very, very good. And your stars, are all your stars dry? Yeah, yeah, they are quite dry. And uh, this is extra brut, so it has one or two grams of, of residual sugar. Mm. Uh, then we also produce a brut. And in the past, the Prosecco was produced also, especially in the extra dry or dry version, mm. so a little bit sweeter versions. But nowadays, people understand and uh, appreciate more brut or extra brut. And you don't make those sweeter styles then? We have, we, we make a little bit of extra dry, but uh, you know, extra dry goes from 12 to 17 grams of sugar. So we stay on the, on the lower level. So on 12 grams, but mainly we produce brut. Uh, that's the main part and a little bit of extra brut. It's interesting, as you said, that most Prosecco is made using the Charmat method. So yeah. the, the bubbles occur in, in a tank rather than in the bottle, but you also make a, a traditional method, a champagne method, uh, Prosecco as well, don't you? I mean, it, that's quite unusual, isn't it, for somebody to do that? I don't know of many people doing that. Yeah, nowadays it's quite unusual, but not many, many people know that this um, method of making Prosecco with fermentation in bottle, mm. which is basically a champenoise method, mm. but with the difference that we don't do the degorgement, and so we sell Prosecco with crown cap 
and with yeasts in the bottle. Ah, so yeah. it's cloudy Prosecco. So we sell it in this way. So this is the reason why not many producers do it now because, you know, it's the market is small for this uh, cloudy and yeasty uh, uh, Prosecco. But no, not many people know that this is the original way of making Prosecco. Ah. So until 70 or 80 years ago, before uh, the arrival of the stainless steel autoclave to make the Charmat method, all the Prosecco was done with bottle fermentation in the spring after the harvest with a crown cap and was sold with yeasts in the bottle without the Gauchemin. So this and is most a very it, funny story. Interesting. And most of it sold locally, presumably. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Most of it sold locally. But nowadays, you know, with this um, also interest in natural wines, orange wines and mm. wines made uh, with ancestral method, mm. Mm. Uh, Prosecco, we call it Prosecco col fondo, that means with sediment in the bottle, it's, uh, it's getting more and more requested. Oh, how interesting. So pe pe people are starting to go for these more artisanal yeah, yes. uh, styles of Prosecco. I suppose yes. with the with the natural wine movement and Pet Nat and all those sorts of things, it, it's part of, of that world, really, isn't it? That's right. And uh, the, the good thing, in my opinion, is that since this is a very specific type of Prosecco and it is uh, for consumers that love this Pet Nat style, ancestral method and natural winemaking, the big companies, the big bottling company and the big industries in wine don't produce this Prosecco no. because this is for a niche market. So it's basically produced from these small agricultural companies that grow the grapes, that do the winemaking and that sell the, the bottled wines. So it's normally done by high-quality producers. Okay, this, that's is, a good, this is very good. That's a good thing. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about your, your white wine, which I love. Um, Ol, do you pronounce it Olmera or Olmera? Ol, Olmera, yes. Olmera. Um, it's this incredible dry white blend um, made not from Glero, which is the Prosecco grape, but Tokai Friulano, yeah, sometimes called Sauvignon Vert, and Sauvignon Blanc. What inspired you to make that wine? Was that a Bordeaux inspiration or was it just something that you thought, hey, I'm going to express the best of the Veneto? Yeah, actually, it was a Bordeaux inspiration because my father uh, planted these two grapes uh, in this vineyard in 1984. And mm. when he went to Bordeaux, obviously, he was uh, he appreciated and he learned how to make how the Sauterne was made with the noble rot botrytis. And uh, by coincidence, Tokai Friulano that we, he planted in 1984, started getting this uh, noble rot, this botrytis in the vineyard uh, without uh, his will. And so he said, okay, shall we do something with it? And we started in 2002, was the first vintage of Olmera, hmm. uh, with these um, uh, nobly rotten grapes uh, that we harvest in the middle of September. Hmm. And then we bring in the winery and we ferment and age in oak French barrels for 12 months. And then the Sauvignon Blanc that doesn't get this uh, botrytis, uh, it ferments in concrete, concrete tanks for 12 months. Then we blend them together after 12 months. We keep them together in cement for six additional months. Then we bottle. Uh, the bottles rest in the winery for 12 months. And then after two or three years from the harvest, we normally release the wine for the market. But it's a dry wine, despite the fact that it's got botrytis, yeah? Yes, it's a, it's a dry wine, totally dry wine, zero, zero residual sugar, mm -hmm. good acidity. Uh, the Tokai gives good structure and good body. Mm -hmm. And the Sauvignon Blanc gives the elegance, acidity and the, the, the aroma. I mean, I, I really like the wine. I think it's a fantastic wine. And I was telling you, there's a friend of mine, in, a Frenchman, really, uh, 
uh, François Lurton, who makes a similar wine in Argentina on the different side of the world. In fact, I've got to send him the photograph of you with your bottle. To All say. right. Uh, so, François, if you're listening, <laughs> it's a very similar wine. But he doesn't use Botrytis on his. I think that's the really interesting twist on it, really. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, fantastic. T tell me about your, your red wines, because you're very one over those as well. You use local grapes and the, the Bordeaux grapes, the international grapes we talked about that your dad brought back. I mean, do you farm and, and vinify all these different red grape varieties in a very different way? Just tell us a little bit about what you've got exactly in the vineyard. Yes, in the vineyards, as red grapes, we have three local varieties, three grapes that are grown uh, in this area only. And they are Marzemino, which was basically the favorite wine of the musician Mozart, because in his opera, Don Giovanni, he wrote, Versa il vino l'eccellente Marzemino, pour the wine, the excellent Marzemino. <laughs> and then uh, Raboso, which is an amazing red grape with a lot of acidity and a lot of tannins, so it can make wines that you can age for 30, 40, or 50 years. And then we have Refosco, which is a very rustic grape that you find in Veneto and also in Friuli, so the very northeast region in Italy. So these three native grapes. And then we have Merlot, we have Cabernet Sauvignon, and we have Carminer. And yes, we vinify them uh, completely differently because each one has a very different characteristic. So, for example, Raboso, we harvest it very late. We harvest it in November to allow uh, the grapes to ripe better, to have a lower acidity and, and um, round tannins. Uh, for the Marzemino, we dry the grapes, the same method as Amarone. So we dry the grapes for three months to, give, uh, to have evaporation of the water and to have more concentration in the grapes and more character. And Refosco, we wait a lot before harvesting. Uh, normally, it ripens at the beginning of, at middle of September. We harvest at the end of September or beginning of October to have more uh, rounded tannins and also lower acidity. And then, you know, the Bordeaux varieties, uh, they are vinified more in classic way, uh, yeah. like, like in Bordeaux style. Interesting. I mean, do you have a favorite? Do you, do you like the Italian grapes more than the French ones or do you like them equally? Uh, I like all of them, but obviously I, I pay a lot of, uh, I, I, I appreciate a lot, you know, the local grapes, especially Marzemino is my love because it's coming from a small vineyard we have in the hills uh, between Valdobbiaden and Conegliano. It has 700 years of history of drying of the grapes. And uh, Marzemino is my favorite for sure. Then I also love Raboso because it's a, it's a wine you can age for 40, 50 years. So it really, it's always a discover when you open a bottle of 20, 30, 40 years Raboso because it's always a, a good surprise. So, so you agree with Mozart, right? Yes, I agree with Mozart, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's yeah. a very good idea. I think Mozart would have been good fun to have a drink, to drink a bottle of wine with, I think, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be amazing. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. I, mean, I just wonder, talking about these red wines, and you know, some of the best red wines of the Veneto are, are incredible. I mean, people know Amarone, but that, that's not obviously the only red wine that's produced there. Well, why is the Veneto not as well respected as Piemonte and Tuscany for its reds? Is, is that changing, do you think? Uh, I believe it's changing. And I believe, uh, you know, the production in, in Veneto is the first region in Italy for production and first region of, in Italy for sales of wine. It's the biggest, yeah? It's the biggest, yeah. yes. Yeah. So uh, it means that uh, 
obviously we have the, the great uh, quality wines, but we also have some more commercial wines. Mm. Uh, whereas in Piemonte and Tuscany, where the production is a little bit smaller in terms of quantity, and uh, you know the average level is very high. Mm. But things are changing, especially nowadays with the new uh, young producers that are paying a lot of attention to uh, reducing the yield in, in the vineyards, mm. to using more natural winemaking, to also paying a lot of attention to sustainability. The mm. quality of the wines is improving in Veneto. And so I believe this will change soon. And st still today, already today, we have uh, good ratings in many wine tastings yeah. with wines produced in Veneto. So uh, I think the... Um, quality of the wines and the recognition of the Veneto region will will be better in the future. And are you always compared with Valpolicella, you know, particularly with Amarone? Is Amarone seen as being the king of Veneto red wines? Yes, for red wines, Amarone is still the king. You know, everybody mm. knows Amarone, everybody asks him for Amarone. Mm. And so it's, uh, it's always a good business card to present. Uh, but, you know, nowadays Prosecco, even though it's a completely different wine and also it, it's a wine uh, that doesn't have the character and the structure of, uh, you know, like Champagne or other mm. important sparkling wines. But, you know, uh, Prosecco is also an important wine in this region. So mm. 20 years ago, when you were talking about Veneto, everybody was asking, oh, Amarone. Uh, now they are also asking Prosecco or Amarone. <laughs> <laughs> it's those yes. two, is it? Right. <laughs> yeah, two, two wines that everybody knows. Yeah, and we, we've talked a little bit about, about marketing and you said that your wife is involved with it and you're good at it too. That you wrote your university thesis about strategic marketing in the wine industry, which is really interesting. I just wondered with the growth of social media in particular, what, what does a marketing a good marketing campaign entail these days? How, how has that changed since you wrote that thesis? Because there was no social media then, was there? Yeah, exactly. Ma many things changed. Uh, obviously, uh, in wine, the personal relation is very important because mm. uh, your distributors or your consumers need to, to, to see you, need to taste the wines uh, with you. Mm. And the most important thing, in my opinion, for quality wines is presenting the wine and tasting the wines with the people. This is mm. absolutely the most important thing. But some things changed compared to uh, 30 or 40 years ago, mm. where advertising uh, on paper, on TV, on mm. other media was very important. Mm. Nowadays, especially young people or middle-aged people, they look a lot at the social uh, media and, and people want to see, want to discover in an easy way from home so it's important to be very active in this social media because, you know, it's like uh, to increase the brand awareness. Mm. And you, the, we, we winemakers, sometimes we pay too much attention on obviously the quality and the production side. Mm. But it's very important to communicate what we are doing because mm. people need to know that today we have done this in the vineyard, that tomorrow we will do that, the other thing. And this wine uh, has just been released. What are the characteristics of the other wine? We have won an award on another wine. And uh, what is the tasting characteristics of uh, Prosecco or Amarone? So social media gives us a very powerful tool to communicate quickly and easily mm. with the broad uh, audience of, of consumers. And it's free, pretty much, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And it's free. So it's very easy and very accessible also for the small wineries that don't mm. have big marketing budget, so cannot have like a TV campaign or a, a, a magazine campaign, very expensive. So it's basically free. So very, very good. Mm. Is that the biggest change then that you've seen in terms of marketing is social media? I think, I think yes, it's the biggest, uh, biggest change. Uh, 
but still today I see because you know uh, after you know the, the the lockdowns of COVID, uh, people started traveling again. We realized that in wine, uh, the the relation of meeting people and staying with people, especially mm. the producer with the consumers or mm. the distributors, is very important. And uh, people want to have the contact with the people who make the wine, want to taste the wine together and want to listen to them. But, you know, having also this presentation via um, Internet is also a good tool to present the wines to a big audience. And it's very easy. I mean, you, you travel a lot and you're, you're a Francophile, as we've already heard. Um, would you like to make wine anywhere else, another region, another country? You don't have time, probably, do you? But I just wonder if there's anywhere you think, oh, I'd really like to make wine there. Yeah, I always... I always have a lot of dreams on, on that. Uh, obviously, I would like to make some fantastic wines in Tuscany, some amazing wines in the hills of Piemonte. Nowadays, uh, I have also, uh, I like to go to the Etna, you know, Mount uh, and Vulcano in Sicily to make wines there, which are amazing. And obviously, the, the, the love of our family is, is Bordeaux, so I would love to be there. But, you know, I, I have to wait and I cannot do everything. So <laughs> for the moment, I'm in Veneto and I'm very satisfied from, from the wines we are doing here. And nobody's asked you to do a joint venture, have they? Uh, not yet, not yet. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe it could, it could happen. It could happen, yeah. <laughs> It'd be quite interesting to make sparkling wine somewhere else, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or maybe to plant Mazzimino in, in, in a new place. Yeah, that could, that could be a good experience. And, you know, uh, it's never said that maybe in some areas the, the quality can be the same level or even better in, than in our area, mm. you know, because we have to try to, to have the results. Because where else is Marzamino grown? It's, it's only in the Veneto, isn't it? Marzamino, it's only in Veneto, a little bit in Trentino, which is the northern region, uh, but it's mainly in Veneto, but still it's a quite small production. So it's quite a tiny quantity of Marzamino produced. Yeah. The other question I always ask people this, and I think it's interesting, is how do you relax? I mean, you're fit, you know, obviously, I don't know if you do lots of sport, <laughs> but and how do you relax and get away from wine? Is wine your life? Wine is absolutely my life and my love since I, I was a child. I love doing sports, a lot of sports. Uh, I love walking in the nature, especially in the vineyards, uh, because it's the most beautiful thing here in, the, in our countryside. But the most... Uh, thing I would love to do uh, when I have some free time is spending time with friends, eating good food, and again, drinking excellent wines. <laughs> <laughs> Making sure you start with a glass of Prosecco, presumably, then you go on to your white, and then you go on to one of the reds, do you? That's, 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 yeah, that's the way we do it. Okay. We start uh, with, the, with a few glasses of Prosecco before dinner, and then we go on with other wines, depending on the food we have. But listen, it's been fantastic talking to you and fingers crossed for this year. And you, it sounds like you need some rain, don't you? Yeah, yeah, we need some rain. Uh, the weather forecast says that for the next 15 days will be dry and sunny, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, for the past two and, uh, and a half months. So, yes, we need some rain. Let's hope it will come. Uh, but so far, the vineyards are in a good situation. They are healthy. They, are, they have the grapes are quite uh, growing quite well. Uh, but we hope that some rain will, will come soon. Okay, fingers crossed. Everybody listen to the podcast. Do a little rain dance tonight yeah. so we can maybe get some rain going in the Veneto <laughs> and all over Europe. Um, listen, Alessandro, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your insights about what's going on in the Veneto at the moment. It's been really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim, and thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Bye-bye. What a thoughtful, charming and articulate winemaker. 
And I tell you what, that white blend on mirror is really worth trying. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is German wine legend Ernie Lozen from the Mosel Valley. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.